All right, I have a question for you. Do you remember your question? From two weeks ago, we ended, and I said, do you have any questions for me to address in two weeks? So let's see how you did on remembering what your questions were. Now, the Roberts aren't here, the Bumphreys aren't here, and that was two of the questions, so we're not going to give them a leave. So next time I talked to them, I'll say, do you remember what questions you want me to answer? So, any of you know, remember the question? Yes? All right, at what point and how long do we tell our kids that they have to come to church? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Anybody else remember any of the questions? Yes? Okay, when they want to do ministry in the church, at what point do we engage them in that and at what level? We're going to talk more about that tonight as well. Mr. Gonzalez, do you remember your question from two weeks ago? I'll put you on the spot. Because you didn't say it out loud. You said it to me afterwards on the way out. Okay, can we do, is, are we called to serve our children with them in our commands to them, essentially? Or are we just doing it for them? End up. Would that encourage or discourage them to, to do it if they see you doing it? Okay. Very good. Well, that's, I'm surprised. So that's pleasantly surprised that you're remembering all that. Uh, one of the other questions was um, how do we approach our children as doing godly activities from duty uh, just because they have to? Um, versus wanting to, and do we, how do we resolve some of that? And we're going to talk somewhat about that. And the other question was, um, how do I prevent them from hating God? And so <laughs> those are my questions that I have. I don't know if I'll get to all of them tonight after doing so. I had two weeks to prepare, and that's a dangerous thing to give me that much time to prepare for some of this. And so I want you to, to uh, work. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do these in the order they were given, and so I'm going to do them a little uh, different than that. But I want to talk about um, your influence with your children. Um, but I'm going to actually begin with the ministry question and the doing godly activities as duty. And we want to look at maybe some things we've already studied. Uh, a couple of these matters really come into play when we discuss uh, wisdom and growing in wisdom because that there are more salvific issues and certainly we want to dovetail growing in wisdom and growing in favor with God that wisdom is the fear of the Lord the, the beginning of the, 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 the to hate evils the beginning is the fear of the Lord and so we want them to hate evil to recognize evil in their life so that they can turn and that's wisdom we talked about wisdom is more salvation that now favor with God is something that we're earning and when you, and we are, we've tried to walk a very careful line so our children don't confuse what they're doing for God with a relationship with God. And so we, we try to make sure that we uh, present that, and that's going to come into play several times here. So I want to um, go to some Old Testament examples and, uh, and into the Psalms as well. And just to get an idea of how we direct them in terms of their service and doing godly things because they need to or must or because it's the family, and hopefully more than just a family tradition. That's what we're going to really talk about. So let's go to, um, oh, where do I want to start here? Let's go to the book of Numbers. Let's go to Numbers chapter 8. 
Numbers chapter 8, and we're going to begin reading verse 24. This might seem like a really weird place to start, but I want to start with where the law was, and then I want to jump forward and see the uh, uh, kind of uh, where the application of that law is very different than what we might have in our mind. So let's pick up in verse 23 of Numbers chapter 8. Uh, not something we necessarily really focus in on, a lot of teaching, but let's go ahead and look at it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. And verse 26 is the key one that I want to really focus in on. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. So for the Levites, they didn't begin engaging in what were considered official work until they were 25. And then they were only allowed to do it for 25 years with one exception. That exception was the high priest who did it the entirety of his life till he died or until God appointed a new high priest. And so... From 25 to 50 was their period of ministry in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so they were not to be engaged earlier than that, and they were not to be engaged after that. And, and you might say, well, so why that, those 25 years? Well, they would have been strong enough to do the required work. And, but yet there's a difference between that and something else. So there's the work of the ministry in God's mind, that the Levites did for these 25 years that were work. And at 50 years old, you retired from that kind of work. All right, this, this, and the work there is kind of the labor of it. But I want you to notice in verse 26, even when you're done working, you are still ministering with their brethren in the meeting to attend to needs. That's kind of an interesting concept, isn't it? So I'm retired, but I'm still connected. I'm a Levite. I'm well-trained. I am going to be at the tabernacle. I get to minister there to attend to the needs of who, is the question. To attend to the needs of my fellow Levites, to attend to the needs of Israel, to attend to the needs of people that come there. And essentially, all those are correct, yes. To attend to needs as however they appear, and so while you're not doing the primary work of the sacrifices, you are doing a secondary work of ministering to the needs of those who are doing the work and those who have come in to participate in the sacrifices. And so because you have lots of experience, and, and maybe you're not as strong as you used to be, but you have a lot of experience, and you're going to use that to attend to their needs and do smaller, quote-unquote, jobs. But it's not considered the work of the tabernacle. You're not out there performing the sacrifices. If you really think about, if you've ever slaughtered a large animal, you begin to understand the, what it physically demanded of you to participate in these sacrifices. Okay, I've done enough animals to know they, they didn't have tractors, they didn't have sawzalls like I use, and things like that. Um, they were doing it all by hand. Uh, I'm sure they had some equipment certainly available to them. But uh, the whole sacrificial process is demanding. But there are other needs. There are other ways to minister besides doing the work. 
And so when we talk about what is the work of the church, well, the work of the church needs to be done by true members of the church. Okay? That is true followers of Jesus Christ. So am I going to set up uh, my child to do teaching ministry and evangelism? No, that's not really what we're going to set them up for because they have to have a relationship with God first and even mature in that. Remember, you're not allowed to do it till you're 25. Okay? Um, well, in this society, 12 or 13, you're considered uh, entering adulthood, but it's not until you're 25 that you're allowed to enter into that work of the ministry uh, in terms of the tabernacle. And so we have other needs, though, besides the work. And so the primary work of the church, which is uh, the sharing of the gospel, the, the, the making disciples, and teaching them to observe everything God's commanded, this is the work that God has given to us as member ministers, that we grow in unity and that we perform ministry one to another according to our spiritual gifts. Are your children who have not yet accepted Christ as their Savior spiritually gifted? No. Okay, they have talents and abilities, they have energy, they have strengths, but they are not spiritually gifted yet. And so we're not going to plug them into the work of the church. But there are other needs. There are other needs that, that, that are uh, not even secondary, sometimes tertiary, that are, that are um, able to be met that aren't considered the work of the church. And so let's go and look at this. And of course the best example is a young lad that grew up in the tabernacle uh, even though he wasn't uh, the priest's son, and that is Samuel. So let's go to 1 Samuel. Chapter 2 and 3 is where we want to spend, chapter 1 as well, for Samuel. So we know that um, Samuel was dropped off by his parents at a pretty young age. Let's see here, does it tell us in 120, uh, verse 24 of chapter 1, says, Now when she had weaned him, she took him with her with three bowls, one heap of flour, a skin, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. All right, uh, at the oldest would be five years of age, okay? Probably a little younger than that, but, but technically you're weaned at five uh, in Jewish custom from what I've researched. And so uh, at, the, at the oldest, he would be five years old, maybe a little younger, and it makes a point to say she brought a sacrifice that was basically, this is about how much this child's going to eat for a while uh, when you start adding up what they brought as the offering. Um, and so, essentially, she's going to provide the food. She's going to provide clothing for him as well. They slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli um, and says this is one that uh, is lent to the Lord. Is how it's described at the end of the chapter is that he is the one lent to the Lord. Now, what does a child do in the tabernacle? Scrub the floors. <laughs> We don't really know very much. We only have one job that we know he performed on a daily basis. And how do I know it? Because it's what he did when he was nervous and having just gotten his first revelation from God in the dream, he gets up. So let's go to chapter 2, or rather chapter 3. Let's go to chapter, uh, let me see here. 
Let's do these in order before I get to what his job was. Verse 11, chapter 2. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And that word is that ministered is to serve. He served before the Lord to Eli. So this is not the work of the tabernacle. This is that same word used in Numbers about ministering, serving the needs that aren't necessarily directly the work of the church. And, and can a child serve those needs? And the answer is absolutely yes. Just like an old man can serve those needs. Okay? You're over 50, you can still serve the needs that are going on there without doing the work of the tabernacle. And those are different concepts in the Hebrew here. So I'm going to serve you, but I'm not doing the work of the church. And so it's vital that we, just as we're trying to balance, you want to do that which pleases God, but you need a relationship with God. We've got to balance that off to make sure that they recognize that this is something they need to accept by faith, the grace of God, whereas this is what they uh, need to be engaged in to, to please God. Um, as a believer, and they can begin those patterns of life before they get saved. Um, we need to rec- be careful. So we need to carefully distinguish between those things that children do or old people do that isn't the work of the ministry, or anyone else in between, by the way, but is a ministry. It is service to them. So when we ask the children to pick up hymn books and to put out hymn books on Sunday morning, then put them out if they get here on time. Um, if there's no children that come early enough, then they do it between science school and church. But they, if they got here early enough for science school, they could put them all out then um, and pick them up afterwards. When we have that, they are, that is not the work of the church. That is a ministry to the needs of all of us because they're really putting those out for each of you to have a hymn book so you can sing and participate in that and so it is uh, an ancillary ministry it is not the work of the church so I'm not going to employ children in the work of the church but if they want to do something to minister to the needs of those who are in church that is completely appropriate And so I just wanted to, I use the numbers passage to show you the difference between the work and ministry to the needs. Okay? And so we often think those are the same, um, but the Bible distinguishes those. And so here Samuel was there to minister to the Lord before Eli the priest. So he was going to minister the needs uh, to to the Lord. He's doing it to Jehovah. And obviously to the, it, it was in reference to Eli. So let's look into chapter 2, a little bit, is that verse 11? Let's look down to verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. And so he was in there, he was wearing a linen ephod, doesn't mean much to you, but that is the garment of a priest's child. And so he is wearing, remember they were to wear the linen ephods. And so he was ministering as a little priest, like a priest in training almost. Um, even though he is not of the high priest's house. And so he is there ministering in the linen ephod, and there is no confusion that, uh, of his role there, that he is being raised as in that tradition. And so let's go to chapter 3 now. And let's, uh, 
Let's go to verse 15. I'm taking way too long. Um, verse 15, so Samuel lay down until morning. He had already gotten his rev- the revelation. He had, uh, he had already gotten up multiple times and run to Eli's side, which is really a representation of what his job is. If Eli calls me, I run and do whatever he says. Great attitude. And that's what I really want to see out of children. If pastor needs you, you run, and, he's, and all he has to do is say your name. Okay, if I say, Josh, Joshua, come here. Joshua's going to run up and say, what do you need? And that's how Samuel functioned, wasn't it? If he heard his name, he ran to Eli because he assumed he needs me. So the proximity to Eli is to meet his needs. Now, Eli is getting to be a pretty old man, and uh, he was a heavy man. We know that because he fell over and broke his neck just by his own weight. And so he was a heavy man, and uh, nice to have a little guy running around doing all things, you know, like tying your shoes, things like that, sandals. So he was right. Well, so now here he's gotten this vision, uh, or the, you know, the word of the Lord's come to him. Now let's see what happens in the morning. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. So apparently, one job we know he had was to get up in the morning and open the doors of the house of the Lord. Okay, is that work? No. It's not a sacrifice. It is not handling the lever. It's not uh, sprinkling of blood. It's none of that. He, he goes, and his job assignment at this point, and he's a little nervous because he had this word of the Lord, and he, it says that he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. So what do you do if you want to avoid him? You go and do your job without being told. <laughs> right? You want to avoid contact with Eli. So he goes and he does his job. And his job is to open the, house, the doors to the house of the Lord in the morning. So that's at least one of the jobs he had. Um, was it, is it related to the house of the Lord? Certainly it's opening the doors. But it's not doing the work of the tabernacle. It is simply opening the doors um, that anyone can do. And Samuel can do, did that. And so... But even then, even under that situation, notice that God has already begun to invest in Samuel. Let's back up in the text here to verses 7 and 8. 7 particularly. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. So what was he doing? He was ministering to the needs of Eli and of the tabernacle in a linen ephod, but he did not know the Lord. That is an intimate relationship with God, nor had he been, the Lord revealed himself to him. And so he didn't know that what God had planned for him. He didn't have that relationship, but even in that condition... He had jobs around there to do to minister to the needs of those who are doing the work. Okay? So the primary responsibility I see for children in church in terms of ministry is that they are ministering to those who are doing the work of the ministry. And a New Testament example, we won't go there because I'm taking a lot of time on this one question, so we're going to do questions next week too. Um, is Another cool example is for in Jesus' ministry. Who ministered to the material needs of Jesus while he was ministering? 
while he was doing the work, the Father's work. Who was it? The women. It wasn't the disciples, it wasn't the 12 apostles. They didn't go out and fish in the morning to, and make, they, they left their nets. They left their jobs to follow Jesus for those years. So who was taking care of them? Well, the women, they were used, now, are the women, do the women have this role to do the Father's work? Were they apostles? No. They weren't qualified because they weren't men. Does that mean that they, could not minister to the needs of those who were doing the work? Obviously they did. It specifically says that they financed Jesus and his apostles in their ministry. They provided for him out of their own financial resources so that they wouldn't have to necessarily address it. Now there was Judas and had a treasury and all of that, but it was these women that were really caring for his needs. And so while he was doing the work, they were ministering to the needs. And it's that level that even when they don't know the Lord, they can still do it. Even though the word of the Lord hasn't been revealed to them, they can still do minister to the needs of those who are doing the work. And that's what we need to present to them. And that's that distinction, and we don't make enough distinction in that, um, that this is the work of the church, these are ministering to the needs of the church, and you can do that without spiritual gifts. You know, put it, it doesn't take a spiritual gift to set up this room or to take, pick up chairs. It doesn't take a spiritual gift to do that. It might be a giftedness that you want to have the, the ministry of helps, which I think is more substantial than just picking up chairs. I think that's coming into people's lives and really making a, a, a powerful difference there in, in supporting them. But this is the work that I would associate for children and for even those who are not believers. Now, um, there, even in this instance, for Samuel, once he gained knowledge of God, he was already ministering it. And so as, even as a young youth, he had the word of the Lord, everyone knew that nothing Samuel said fell to the ground. Even as a young person, that's a scary proposition, huh, when you got a young guy that's speaking the word of the Lord, but he was faithful to it. Um, now, we do uh, have children come in and participate. Do, do your children sing? Do your children sing in church? I know a lot of them don't. They don't pick up a hymn book, and I don't see them singing much, and I don't harass them too much. They sing at We're Life Club somewhat, and when we have special music, they come up and sing, and we do that, but is singing the work of the church? Yes. And that's why I don't have children leading you in singing. Um, that, that's the work of the church, is to lead in that facet of worship, but should they participate in it? Do your children participate in uh, different activities? Absolutely. They should participate in them, but they should not do the work of them. And so we want to be careful that we distinguish that as well. And so let's go to Exodus to see that a little. Oh, by the way, um, how did it end up for Samuel? How did he do with his boys? Chapter 8 says that his sons did not walk in his ways. 
They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Chapter 8, verse 3. Okay, so one of the questions was, how can I keep my children from hating God? Uh, how can I prevent them? You can't. You can influence them, but you can't prevent them from turning away from God. Here is a man of God that served God for, for all of his life, essentially, and his children rejected it. It says they did not walk in the ways of their father. They went after a dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted just to such a degree that Israel gathered to Samuel and said, please relieve us from your boys. We're, we don't even want them to rule over us. We'd rather have a king than them um, because they are so dishonest. And so um, can you prevent it? No. Can you influence that? And yes, we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. So I just wanted to insert that because we're going to really come back to that a little bit more next week. But I want to press on in this idea of a child serving in the church. And it goes to the question, too, of godly activities as duty and also of making them go to church. It also references that participating. Do I, how do I participate? So let's go to Exodus. Let's start there. Uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 12. This is uh, the Passover. Uh, the tenth plague has already been, is being instituted, and they're giving instructions on how to do it. And uh, by 29, it, it occurs, the, 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 uh, uh, the death of the firstborn occurs there in 29. So I want to back up a little bit into the instructions, in verse 26 particularly. But uh, let's uh, go to 24. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And this is reiterated again in chapter 13. If you want to turn the page, verse 8. Um, and uh, when we're eating unleavened bread during the Passover, uh, why are we eating unleavened bread? In verse 8, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you and your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with it, a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And let's back up to chapter 10 as well. I want to jump on that because I want to put pieces together for us. Chapter 10, verse 2. Uh, oh, let's read verse 1 so we get the context. The uh, Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so we have this instruction that we have responsibility to communicate our testimony to our children. And so as we seek to please God in our life, our children should be asking, why? 
Why do you do that? Well, I do that because God has done so much for me. I don't do this because it's our tradition. I don't do this because, well, my daddy told me to do this. I do this because of my relationship, our historical relationship with God. We do this because Jesus died on the cross for me. He also died on the cross for you. And so we do these things, and we have our children participate with an expectation of them asking us, why? What is this that you're doing? And we rehearse for them the accounts of God's word so that they can learn. They learn by seeing us doing it and then asking us, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What is all this? Why do we have to eat this kind of bread? You can almost hear, maybe the attitude is even there. Why do we have to do this? Well, we, and that can expose a heart that isn't interested in things of God. And so we take, and notice what they do. They go back to the historical work of God in their lives. So we don't just go to communion table and say, well, this is because Jesus died on the cross. Well, that happened 2,000 years ago. We, you, why are you eating a cracker and drinking juice in this weird setting in a formal way? Why are you doing it? Not why are we doing it, but why are you doing it? This is your testimony. This is your chance to share your personal testimony with your children. And that's why we want them in the room. We want them here. We're not going to send them out of the area. We want them to see you partake in something that is obviously different than anything else they're exposed to. Same thing with baptism and, and these celebrations. And, and we partake of the Lord's table, and we want them to see, we want them to see that it's not for them, but it is for you. Why do you, can't I? Are great questions that they need to have liberty to ask. When you answer that question, now you get to talk about the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. You need to talk about a relationship with God. How do you do that? By sharing your personal testimony of your relationship with God. Why are you partaking in communion? Why? Do you want to? Do you, or is it just because you have, is it your duty? And so, well, we do this because Jesus told us to, we are commanded to do it. Uh, or is it, what, what is your testimony? And so, whenever the children come forward, we're supposed to give them our personal testimony of us or of the historical work of God that we have seen his power and it has made an impact upon who we are, where we live, who I am, and how I live. This is beginning to talk about who are we? Defining yourself to your children. And that needs to be in place, that we're going to define ourselves. Sometimes do I do it out of duty um, because it's, it's, it's requisite of me. Yes, of course. But that is what the Christian walk is, is that I, it is my duty to serve God. It is incumbent upon me to serve him because not out of, uh, because he's an ogress God, but because he's a loving God, he's done so much for me, how could I not do it when he's done so much for me? Now, what's a tour of duty? Military guys, what's a tour of duty? It's how long you work. What do, why do we use that term, tour of duty? It's the time period that you have an assignment. The duty simply means that you have been assigned by a higher authority to a specific place, time, task. Tour tells you that it's a period of time, the tour of duty. 
So I have this tour of duty in this place, and here was my assigned task. I had to break things in this country or kill people or, or create mayhem or, or be a peacekeeper, um, uh, whatever. So whatever my tour of duty was, the assignment. Now, the assignment wasn't of your selection, correct? The authority above you selected the assignment and gave it to you. But why are you serving especially in our military that is not compulsory. Why are you serving? Why are you serving the military, supposedly? Okay, because you loved your country. Yeah, you, patriotism. Um, you love your country. And, we, and when we talk about veterans, we talk about their sacrifice out on the battlefields, we talk about their love for the liberties of our land, their love for country. Now, were some of them out there just doing it for money? Certainly, because they couldn't find another job. I don't know. You know I don't know what, what their motivation is, but traditionally, in a volunteer army, they have a love for their country and their family and the liberties of that country. They love their country. And guess what? German soldiers serve because they love Germany. Russian soldiers serve because they love Russia, um, if, it's, if it's a voluntary army, right? In Israel, it's compulsory. Everybody goes in the military, but they do it, and I've seen very few of them complain because they love their country. So why do we do things as duty? We, duty simply means we have an assignment. We, but our motivation should be love. And so we need to communicate that to our children, that we can distinguish between duty that is bummer uh, and the burdensome is the term that John uses in 1 John 5, 4, 5, 5, I think. Um, that I'm going to obey him, but it's not burdensome. All right, if you're doing the work of God and it's burdensome to you, then you're not doing it for love of. Okay, I serve God out of love for God and out of a grateful heart to him. And it's not burdensome to me. Now, is some of the work of the church a, a load to carry? Yes. Can it be kind of a burden? Yes, but Jesus just says, uh, my burden is light. Okay, because he's right there to help me. I have a Holy Spirit. I have all these resources, spiritual resources. But your children don't have those resources. They have you. Okay? And so for them, I'm not looking for an attitude that they can't wait to get up and go to church, although many children will have that if their parents have it. If you're excited to get up and going, it, it is infectious to your children. They'll be excited to get up and going. If it's drudgery for you, they will pick up on it so fast you won't believe it, and, they, and that's when they'll give you problems. If it's something you're excited about, can't wait, and nothing is going to get in the way of you getting to church and getting there uh, with bells on, and if you don't know what that means, study it. With bells on, what does that mean? That's an old phrase. You're going to get to church with bells on. Mrs. Fry, do you know what that means? Yep, the one with the bell is out there in front. You're going to be on there with bells on. That means you're going to lead the way. You're going to be the example setter, not just for your family, but for the whole church, which means you're going to be there consistently, you're going to be there early, you're going to be there and, and faithfully and dependably and all of that. And so with bells on, you're going to be there dressed to the hilt. When you have a horse with bells on, they haven't just been quickly harnessed to run an errand. They are dressed out, and they are fully 
geared. And so um, that's the concept there of promptness and also preparedness. If you are prompt, prepared, and, and, and worship is precious to you, um, that will be picked up by your children. If it's not, that will also be picked up by your children. If it's just burdensome for you to do it, oh, i got to get up and go to church today. Oh, i got to get up and serve the Lord today. Oh. And that includes going to work. Yes, going to work is worship. When you go and earn a paycheck, that's honoring to God. That's worship. You're caring for your family, and that's something that we should work and earn a living. I have enough to share. That's a biblical principle. If a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. Uh, all of these things. And so these are all acts of worship. We need to present them to our children as that. And so distinguish between burdensome and duty. I don't think anything that's done as a duty um, means that it's a burden to do it. It's an assignment. It's your duty. It, it's, it's, there's a duty list, <laughs> and that's, that's my assignment today. And so we have an assignment from God, and we need to present it as, this is what I get to do for God today. And rather than com- that's why we should do everything without complaining. Because complaint tells you that it was a burden to, for God's assignment for you that day. And I'm guilty of that too. Okay, and I catch myself, why am I complaining? That was God's assignment for me today. How did I do on it, by the way? Did I do well or did I fail at it? Just because you got an assignment doesn't mean you did well with it, right? <laughs> and so, um, can children serve? Yes. How should they serve? Um, they should serve in ministries, not in the work. Of the needs of those who are doing the work, they should be looking to meet those and we should be engaging them in participating with the goal of them asking. And so we're going to, I'm going to hold off on getting them to church and why, how long does that persist and how forceful do we need to be in that respect, um, along with the whole idea of preventing them from hating. And uh, Daniel's question I was also prepared for tonight, but I'm going to hold off on that as well. Um, since I have five minutes, I'm not going to cover those other questions. <laughs> Let's go to the, one of the examples I had that I didn't reference earlier. Let's go to um, Numbers chapter 6. And I have an example of Numbers 6. Numbers chapter 6 is a very strange chapter. It uh, talks about the vow of the Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite. So who is my example that I'm going to get us to? Who? Samson. Is that what you said? No. Daniel? Samson had the vow of the Nazarite on him. From when? From inside the womb, from before birth. So even mom had to live like a Nazarite while she carried it, him, (laughs) it. See, we have that influence of the world in our vocabulary. That it's a fetus. No, it's a person. He, he, she. All right, so let's look at the Nazarite vow a little bit and see how Samson was um, set aside from birth. It says, um, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, so what do you find right away? 
It's not just men that are Nazarites, are they? A woman can become a Nazarite. To separate himself to the Lord, that is to become holy. To be separate is holiness. So when I'm separating myself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine or vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he, so no kabucha, okay? None of that's nasty stuff. Um, neither shall I drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh grapes or raisins, anything from the vine. All the days of his separation, is that word there in verse 4, uh, all the days of his separation as a Nazarite, in this dedication of himself, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. There's that word separation. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother. For his brother or his sister, when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, and on the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting, and the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse, and he shall sanctify his head on that same day. It is a sin to violate your Nazarite vow, even if it was, quote-unquote, accidental. Someone suddenly died beside you and you grabbed onto them and they were dead. That's a sin, end of that vow. Verse 12, He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in his first year as a trespass offering, but the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So, let's back up a little bit. So when you are set aside as Nazarite, that Nazarite vow is for a certain duration. We believe Paul took this on his way to Jerusalem because when he got there, he wanted to fulfill his vow. And so a Nazarite vow is simply, I'm going to separate myself to a, a, a particular relationship with God for a defined period of time. And if you, vi- if you don't make it, if you set a vow for this period of time, all right, so let's say I'm going to separate to the Lord for one year. I'm going to take the Nazarite vow, and I'm going to take it before God for one year. And 11 months and 15 days into it, Someone drops dead beside me and I help them and they died. I didn't fulfill my vow. I broke it. So now I have to shave my head, offer a sacrifice, and I have to start over to fulfill the time period of my vow. I, have to, I don't get to pick up where I left off. It's not no, no, no time served stuff. Um, you start over and you go for another year. Okay. And so that's, and, and now, and then at the end of the prescribed time that you vowed, you come before the Lord at the end of that, and you present your offering, and you shave your hair, so men or women, you shave off everything you've grown over that period of time, and that is, and that is added, and that is part of your burnt offering. You burn that before the Lord, and this is literally a, a, a on your head, Okay, the head is the, you'll hear it over and over again in this chapter, is on your head, is on your head, is on your head. 
because you have made a commitment. Did Samson ever make that commitment? No. His parents did. How long was his Nazarite vow? All his days. Correct. All his life. So when he violates the Nazarite vow, which he did on occasions, correct? Did he drink wine? Did he touch dead bodies? Yes. Every time he did that is a do-over. He owes God all the way back to the beginning of his life. And so when we look at this, um, the, it starts over. And so the, the rest of your life now has to be, and that's why when his hair grew back after a season, his strength returned because basically the vow started over. And apparently, if the Philistines had been smart, they would have kept him haircut and they would have fed him wine regularly. Why they let his hair grow out? They knew. <laughs> when you know that's the secret, but they, I assume they just figured he was blind and he couldn't do any damage, but he did more damage in his death than he did in all of his life. And so we, we have the renewal and, and to completion, and so he's going to fulfill the vow to completion, and that's why God hears his prayer at the end. But I want you to just notice that here, even as a child, his parents were raising him as a Nazarite, as the assignment from God, and that was put upon him. But that did that make an impact on his heart? No. Did he judge Israel? Yes. But it was almost by against his will. He became a judge of Israel. He he but, but he was actually kind of friendly to the Philistines. He kind of liked their ways, their women, and, and all of that. And God had to bring a point of conflict between him and them. He had to force the issue. And so he's forced into being a judge of Israel until his last act. And so when we find him as a judge of Israel, he's one of the poorest examples and yet he was raised as a Nazarite from infancy, from, from conception. He was raised as that. So I just want to share with you that we can push our faith on our children. We can make them follow along. We can engage them at that. And they can still have a very troubled life. Okay? Um, can God still use them? We keep praying for them because God can use them. It's just how much misery is between your leaving your authority or rebelling against your authority and submitting to God's authority. How much misery has to be in their life between those two is really the question. And that varies. For Samson, that was a lot of misery there. Would you agree? He had kind of a miserable life. It was always fighting and and getting, he was getting disappointed here and disappointed there. He falls in love with this girl, and she ends up marrying somebody else, falls in love with this girl. She betrays him and gets him blinded and enslaved. And uh, the guy had kind of a miserable life. Was it the parents' fault? Not any more than it was um, Samuel's fault that his sons chose to do evil and not follow after the Lord. And so 
the principle is there that we do all that we can, and we're going to talk about the limits of that next week uh, a little bit more, and about being an example as well and how we lead them. But ultimately, we pray for them that they would one day submit themselves to God. And that might mean that you might have to let them be miserable. Okay? Um, Mom and Dad Samson did not bail him out. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And so that's something that your children are going to have to devise that. But don't think that, remember, we're not determinists. So it's not, if you do A, B, and C, that this is going to happen. If you do one, two, three, you're going to definitely get this result. That is not what this is about. You're doing your part so that you are right before God in how you raise your children. Should they be raised the way God wants them to be? Absolutely. Do you have the authority to force them to live a certain way while they're under your authority? Yes. We'll talk next week about when that um, comes to a conclusion, and it might be different than you think, because I think the biblical pattern there is different for men and women. Okay, and we'll talk about that uh, down the road. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your, these examples from your word, instruction from your word. And Lord, our prayers for our families here, for their children, uh, whether they're young or old, uh, their children might desire to follow after you all their days. And Lord, that we might give them the resources, the opportunities, the tools to do so. Lord, we thank you for young hearts that want to serve you like little Samuel in the temple. And Lord, we know that you honor that, even as you honored Samuel's service to you and, we, we, and his parents' prayers for him and their lending him to you. And Lord, we pray that uh, we might have that same spirit of Hannah and Elkanah toward our children, that they are yours. And we want them to follow after you all their days. We want them to serve you. And Lord, help us as a church to encourage that, to uh, be careful in presenting it properly. And Lord, help us to really uh, develop spiritually um, the maturity of understanding why we're doing what we're doing, that we might share our own personal testimonies of that as parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, that when they ask the reason, that we give them not just the historical event, but what it means to us personally and why we're doing it. Lord, help us to bring that into their lives, that they might internalize that for their need to personally receive your work as well. And Lord, we do pray for the salvation of uh, our children, for all of our family members. And again, whether they are young or old, uh, that do not know you as Savior, Lord, are not walking according to your ways. And whether they are adult children or, or very little ones, we pray that, that you might work in their lives and that you might bring them uh, uh, your revelation. You might bring people, share with them the gospel. Your spirit might convict them that, that some might receive you as Savior and Lord. And we praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll finish up this, and then we're going to get into the growing in favor with men which will be interrupted for a while, but we'll get through this next week.